That's the last one. Today. Perfect. If you have a Bible handy, we're up to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. It's a long chapter, I think maybe the longest chapter in the book, uh, so I'll try and keep my comments short. We're going to work through, uh, through this in uh, sections. I'll read a section, a few comments as we go. Um, this is the conclusion of this section that's this covenant on the plains of Moab that Moses was instructed to make in addition to the covenant at Mount Sinai. Uh, The main body of this second covenant has been in chapters 29 uh, and 30 and 31. But now in 32, or actually previous in 31 that Nate led two weeks ago, Moses was commanded to write a song. And this is the song that he wrote that we're going to look at this week. So he's commanded to write a song. And he writes this song both as a witness for God against his people and as a teaching So we're going to read this song tracking the dramatic movement because there is sort of a story to this song and then draw out a few themes. The song begins in verses 1 through 3 with a formal introduction. The formal introduction. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. You see here at the beginning, it already has a bit of uh, legal court kind of language. Heaven and earth are summoned as witnesses. Come here. So, and we're going to see throughout that there's a legal theme to this song. It's kind of structured like a court case. But verse 2, may my teaching drop as rain, my speech distill as the dew, may it be life-giving. And so this song is meant to be teaching. It's a teaching device. Moses is supposed to teach it to Israel. They're supposed to learn it. And it's, a, it's really a warning as we're going to see. But then verse 3, the purpose of this song is ultimately doxological. That is, to proclaim God's greatness, to praise God. Verses 4 through 6 then introduce the theme of the song. And the theme of the song actually picks up some of the central themes of our text this morning. It contrasts, on the one hand, God's faithfulness and justice with God's people's foolishness and rebelliousness. Verses 4 through 6. The rock... His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Verse 4 is like the chorus, the main uh, statement about God's character in this psalm. God's basic character is that he is perfect, just, faithful, and upright. 
Then verse 5, the counterpoint. But God's people are crooked, corrupt, blemished, no longer his people, a twisted generation. Verse 6 is saying, it's, it's, a, it's a question. Is this how you behave? This is foolish and senseless. Isn't God your father, your creator, your founder? Certainly this isn't how you treat your father, your creator, your founder. Any comments or questions on these initial opening verses? Well, verses 7 through 14 then recount God's past faithfulness. It's saying, is this how you treat your father? This is what your father is like. And it recounts his past faithfulness from the patriarchs to the present. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land. He ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. Curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of grapes." This section uh, on God's past faithfulness begins with this uh, recurring term in Deuteronomy. Do you see it there in verse 7? Remember. Remember. And that's Deuteronomy is constantly calling the people back to remember. Remember God's character. Remember his past faithfulness. And then, lest you forget, ask your fathers. They'll tell you. Or if your fathers have passed on, ask the elders. They'll tell you. They know the story. And you notice in these seven verses, God is the subject of nearly every verb. God gave, divided, fixed, founded, encircled, cared for, kept. He spread his wings over. He carried, he guided, he made to ride. He even in this striking image, uh, remember verse four, the rock. God is called the rock. Well, verse 13, he suckled him with honey out of the rock. This recounting of God's past faithfulness doesn't simply begin with the Exodus, as Deuteronomy has earlier in the book, but it really goes back to the beginning of history, the founding of the first nations and people groups through the patriarch, uh, patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Exodus. And so it sets Israel's history in the context of a broader cosmology or history as a whole. So do you see in verse uh, 8 there, When he gave the nations their inheritance, he divided up mankind. He fixed borders according to the numbers of the sons of God. So it's it's this big dividing of all the nations. And then it picks up and moves forward. Any comments on those verses? We'll pick up some of the themes coming back to the Lord as the rock and, and some of these other images at the end.
Okay, well, verses 15 through 18, then, is the indictment of God's people. Verses 17 through, 7 through 14 that we just looked at expanded verse 4's basic characterization of God. Now verses 15 through 18 expand on verses 5 and 6's characterization of Israel. Verses 15 through 18. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. This section here, this indictment of God's people, it picks up the language of verse 14. Verse 14, it's a blessing that God fatted lambs or fat lambs. And now in verse 15, but Jeshurun grew fat. Uh, they dined too much on good things. They became fat, stout, and sleek, and forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of their salvation. This has been a recurring motif, especially in these ending chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, although in the beginning chapters 10 and 11 as well, that in the very midst of God's blessing, we're at risk of forgetting the God who blesses. We get the good things and we forget the God who gives the good things. Now we see in these three verses that God's people, or four verses, God's people are the subject of most verbs. They grew fat, they kicked, they forsook, they scoffed. They stirred God to jealousy, they sacrificed to demons, they were unmindful, and they forgot. God calls them to remember, and yet they've forgotten. Any other comments here before we move to the next section? Yeah, Nate. Yep. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so the, that first part was the patriarchs to the present. Now it's moving into the future. It's saying, learn this song, and this song is my case against you. When you do these things, you already know the case. It's not some, there's no surprise evidence that the DA is going to pull out at the trial. It's all right there before you. You know everything. Uh, and so it's all the more absurd <laughs> that, you would, that you would slip into rebellion. Verses 19 through 25 then turn to God's judgment. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. He said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth in its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. 
Outdoors, the sword shall bereave, and indoors, terror. For young man and woman alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. Again, here we see God as the subject of most of the verbs. Israel has made him jealous by worshiping demons, false gods, new gods. Uh, it seems to be a, a mockery that a, a new god is almost an oxymoron. If, it, if a god's a god, they should be old, right? Predate their people. Well, the people do all this. What does God do? How does he respond? He sees, he is spurned, he hides, he is jealous. And so he will make them jealous and heap up disaster. Verse 19, God sees, but he cannot bear to see his people going after false gods. And so he hides his face it's as if it's too painful for God to watch his people going astray. In verse 21, there's this irony. They've made me jealous with no gods, so I will make them jealous with no people. Uh, they're worshiping something that's not really a god that, that, that's worthless in my sight. And so I will punish them with a people who is worthless in their sight. Hosea and Paul both pick up this idea and develop it. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul says God's in the business of turning no people into his people. And so we as Gentiles are no people, and yet we've been made into God's people. And yet by that very process of making no people into God's people, Israel, God's original people, are provoked to jealousy, which will ultimately lead to repentance. In a sense, we're a byproduct of this dynamic between God and his people, uh, his people Israel. Verses 22 and following then, we see these covenant curses, devouring fire, disaster, arrows, hunger, swords, and war. Not a pretty scene. But then beginning in verse 26, there's a surprising reversal a surprising reversal. We'll look at verse 26 through 34. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. For they are a nation void of counsel and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For their, their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? The song now at this point builds to its, uh, no, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Uh, here's the surprising reversal. God says in verse 32, I would have wiped my people out from human memory, ready to totally destroy them. But why does God not do that? Because there's something good in them, <laughs> because they repent? No, none of that. The reason that God says he doesn't do it is because the enemies of Israel who God has been using to punish them will then misunderstand and say, our hand is triumphant. We've done this ourselves. 
It's not the Lord who did it. Moses has used this argument a number of times in the Pentateuch when he's interceding for Israel. He says, if you destroy Israel, then the nations round about will say, well, their God can't save them. Well, here Moses doesn't make this argument, but God himself makes the argument. In other words, God is saying, ultimately, I will save for my name's sake. It's not because Israel deserves it that I spare them. They don't deserve this grace. They deserve destruction. But for my name's sake, so that these other nations won't think that they've done it on their own without me, I will relent. Then in verses 28 through 33, it's a description of the nation that's used to punish Israel. They're void of counsel. They have no understanding. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. They would recognize they are being used as a tool in God's hand. But they're not wise. God says, how could they have, one, have chased a thousand, two, have put ten thousand to flight unless the rock had handed over his people into their hands? I love this contrast. Their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. He says, really, they're from the root of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're no better than these wicked cities. And yet they think they're something special because God has used them to punish Israel. Any other comments there? Yeah, Nate. Oh, that's true, too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's certainly the thought in the ancient world is, uh, you know, whichever army wins, that God must be the most powerful. And so the, I mean, the classic example of this is in the beginning of 1 Samuel when the Philistines beat the Israelites and they take the Ark of the Covenant to the temple of Dagon and they think, well, he can be sort of a lesser God in Dagon's temple. We defeated him, so he can't be that great of a God. And yet Dagon keeps falling over uh, and the idol is shattered. Um, uh, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, so less people think they should chase after the, nation, the, the false gods of these nations. Verses 35 through 42, then, God's deliverance. The song here builds to its climax. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is nothing, none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See, now I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired head of the enemies. Verse 35, vengeance is mine. And by implication, therefore, vengeance is not yours. It's the Lord's. Verse 36, he says, I will vindicate my people 
and have compassion, or, or, or the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Do you see why? Why he has compassion? When he sees that their power is gone, they've become nothing. We don't like to hear it, but it's when we are powerless, when we are broken, when we've become nothing, then God's ready to start working with us. It's not a pleasant truth to hear, but it it corresponds with this earlier, that God acts for his name's sake. Again, he delivers us for his own glory. If we were mostly perfect and just needed little tweaks, where's the glory for God in that? But we are lost sheep. We're sinners. We're broken. (laughs) We ultimately really are nothing. And when we recognize that and see God still working in us, then to God is the glory for our salvation. Verse 39. See now, at the end of this process, you've strayed after false gods, sacrificed to them. You've been punished, and yet you've been delivered. Do you see now? that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is left alone, supreme and all-powerful. In verse 8, God says he has assigned the nations to various sons of gods, or possibly so-called gods. Verse 17 says you've sacrificed to demons, to those who are no gods, to new gods. Okay, so there's kind of a a trajectory here. Initially, verse 8, well, it seems like every nation has their God, and Israel has their God, Yahweh. Verse 17, there's a little bit more to it that's saying, well, these are really demons that you're sacrificing to. But now here in verse 39, do you see now that I am he, and there is no God beside me? I alone am God. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal I don't want to make too much out of a little detail, but it's interesting that it doesn't say, as we'd expect, I make alive, you know, I give life to the young, to newborns, and I kill or I take life. Um, uh, That's what Job says, right? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but it's reversed here. I kill and I make alive. And it seems to me there that there's a shadow of the hope of resurrection, that the God who kills can make alive even what has been killed. The God who wounds can heal what has been wounded. And perhaps here there's an intimation of the themes we reflected on this morning, that these are wounds which indeed heal, wounds for our own good. In verse 43, there's this concluding call to worship. Rejoice, O heavens, bow down to him all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Moses came and he recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may, be command- that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So Moses writes this song. He teaches it to Israel. Uh, One of my professional interests is the transition between Moses and Joshua's leadership. And it's interesting 
Moses came and recited it in the hearing of all the people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun, Joshua is beginning to work alongside Moses as an apprentice. And then Moses says, take to heart these words as a warning. Command them to your children so that they too will be careful to do the words. Parents, here's our instruction. Command these words to our children. But notice what he says. It's no empty word. It's not, um, you know, dead laws that we just have to follow. Minutia. No, the Torah, the teaching, is your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land. The word of God is our life. I just want to draw together briefly a couple images or themes from this song. As I mentioned, it's a long song here. First is, do you you notice these different images for God? It begins by referring to God as the rock. He's the rock in verse 4, verse 15, verse 18, verse 30, verse 31. And God, the rock of Israel, is contrasted with the false rocks of the nations in verse 31 and 37. Uh, I was jokingly thinking I could call this this section rock music. Uh, It's a song about the rock of Israel. God is the rock. He is Israel's strength, their shelter, their stability, He is constant and faithful. Images for God in this song. God is an eagle in 32.11. Back in the food laws of Deuteronomy, which I'm sure you all memorized when we studied, uh, you'll recall an eagle is an unclean animal. But just because an animal is ceremonially unclean, it does not mean that it cannot be a picture of God. And so the eagle caring for its young, spreading its wings over its young. There's a massive eagle's nest on Axton Road just below the guide that we pass on the way to church. That eagle can be a picture of God's care for his people. Then verse 6, God is a father, the father who made you. But verse 18, God is also Israel's mother. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. This word bore you here is not uh, carried you on my back, but as a mother bears a child. It's that word, uh, the rock that bore you, that gave birth to you. And you forgot the God who gave you birth. Neither paternal nor maternal imagery alone captures the fullness, the breadth of God's compassion and care and love. And so both images of mother and father are applied to God in this song. And then we see, especially in verses 40 through 42, God as a divine warrior. He sharpens his flashing sword. He uses arrows and his sword will devour. He is a divine warrior. But who does he fight for? The powerless. I see my people and their power is gone and that's when I fight for them. When they lift themselves up, I'm actually opposed to them. But when they're powerless, I fight for them. There's some other themes here. There's a lot going on in the song, but I think that's sufficient for tonight. Any other closing comments or observations? Yeah, Nick. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Not, not upright, but, but at least not, not upright in the 
Yes. Yeah. And, and then connecting back to verse 5, they're crooked and twisted, and yet their name, they should be upright, straight, and yet they're crooked and twisted. Yeah, great. Thanks, Nick. Yep. Yeah. 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 I, I was reflecting this week, studying this passage, that in a way, personally, we're kind of right around verse 14. That for a lot of years as students, you know, your bank account hits zero before the next paycheck, and you live, you are, you have no power of your own, that you're dependent on God. And yet now, like, our bank account doesn't get to zero before the next payday. Like, we have extra money. And you can start to feel confident and think, well, I can weather everything on my own. And yet, that's the temptation. It's in the very blessing of God to uh, stray from God and start to think that it's, you're doing it yourself. Um, Israel does it, and then this enemy nation does it and says, we did it in our own strength. And both times God turns against Israel, he turns against the enemy nation. That when we think we're doing it ourselves, forget God. Yeah. Yeah, self-sufficiency is the, uh, is the uh, idol of our age. Everybody thinking they're autonomous and self-made. Well, it's a stern, stern song in some ways, and yet the lessons are still relevant to us. I don't think there's a setting of it in our hymnal. Uh, maybe someone should take on that task. Uh, the closing hymn, though, that, that uh, Chris had picked for us is 195, Joy to the World. <laughs>